welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or indeed email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Anya Martin, who is the director of the Affordable Housing Campaign Group, Priced Out. I came across Anya a couple of weeks ago when um, an article she wrote back in February was recirculating on social media, and it was a particularly interesting one. So I will let Anya um, give give, uh, the context of that herself. Anya, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Hi. Um, Anya, you're the director of the Affordable Housing Campaign Group, Priced Out, um, based in the UK. What is Priced Out? So Priced Out is a campaign group. Um, It's entirely volunteer-led, so about 20 or 30 people, all volunteers, including myself. Um, We are almost all of us renters who have experienced the sharp end of the housing crisis in in England. Um, we, We focus on four priority areas. So the first of all is, that, as I said, it's all to do with housing affordability. Um, we focus predominantly on housing supply and increasing housing supply, especially in high demand areas where prices are higher. Uh, we focus on affordable housing supply as well as part of the broader supply uh, challenge. So how can we increase social rented or council rented homes um, for those in the greatest need? We focus on tax reform um, to incentivize people to move into properties of the right size and, and to use our stock most efficiently and effectively. And we also campaign for people who are going to be trapped renting for the, the short or even longer term for reforms to tenancy law and renters' rights to make that experience more palatable while it lasts. Um, so we see ourselves as, as a campaign representing anyone who is priced out of the area and the type of housing that they want where they want to live. Okay, Anya, thank you for that. All of those four priorities, and you're touching on issues that are very prevalent in the Irish property market at the moment, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of that. But let's start by talking about supply, because I'm really delighted to hear you call that kind of, you've listed that almost um, as the first priority. And what's really interesting, um, just before we before we came on air, I did mention to you that you know in Ireland there certainly seems to be an over um, um, there's an over involvement in a cycle of politicians in our housing policy, which means even things that have a chance of working um, if they were given longer term are subject to this four year to this four year cycle. So actually, there isn't a good opportunity, but there also isn't an appetite for failure. It's all about quick wins or do nothing. Um, and, and it's been such a problem in the Irish property market. But one of the one of the impacts of that is that it's very unpalatable for politicians and therefore the general public um, to be seen to incentivize supply. And yet supply side initiatives are exactly what's needed to deliver new homes, whether it's uh, for the rental market or the sales market, uh, social or affordable, um, we need new supply. And yet incentivizing supply is a really unpalatable solution for politicians and policymakers. How do you how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, it seems as if this is an issue very much the world over in, in all similar economies, really. Um, and I, I guess it's very interesting because it's it's very much that the economic question has been solved. We know that we need to build more homes than we are doing in most um, developed countries. But 
the political problem of actually getting that past people has not been solved. And that's the really live issue. Um, so from priced outs perspective, as, as a kind of campaign group, what we try to do is just focus on bringing that message to the fore. Um, first of all, one of the main messages that we, we always push as, as loud as we can is that rising property prices are not a good thing. I don't know if you, if you have the same issue in Ireland, but we, we often have um, people talking glowingly about property prices rising as if it's a sign of a strong economy when it's not really. It's, it's just a, it's a form of inflation um, and it, it harms renters and, and people that don't have their own home um, and, and benefits people who do. It's a kind of direct transfer of wealth. So that's the message that we firstly try and convey is that actually in a functioning economy, in a functioning market, you would see the price of housing steadily declining just as we have seen the price of any other good or service, you know, the price of travel or the price of food, all of that has dropped so enormously over the last century. There's no reason that housing can't do the same other than the fact that we won't let it. Um, so focusing on that message, focusing on this as a, as a crucial part of intergenerational equality and fairness um, is, is our thing. Focusing on the idea that opposing new housing supply has costs and that those costs fall on the people who can least afford them. Um, and I often find that that's a, a message that's quite new to people. It's like they've never really considered it that way, that we don't all benefit from rising house prices. We don't all benefit from opposing new house building. Someone has to live in those homes. Um, so we, we focus on pushing those messages into a broader audience at quite a high level. And you're touching on something that I, I, I definitely did want to come to in this interview because I, I started by introducing you um, uh, through Priced Out, um, the campaign group, but you're also on the advisory board of London YIMBY, which is the yes in my backyard, which is countering the, the sweep of NIMBYism, which is the not in my backyard that is halting development. And um, I think I mentioned to you through our fast track uh, fast track planning process, um, there is a, an option or there is a, a process for a judicial review. So it means that planning that has been granted can actually um, be be reviewed through our um, superior courts. And one of the things that we've seen in recent research is that over the past three years, these um, objections to planning that have already been granted. Um, are up 1,000%. They're up tenfold over the last three years. Um, now, you know, nimbyism plays a huge role in this. Uh, no matter what way you look at it, it's not popular to say, but it does. Um, but the interesting thing, and I think you framed it really well, when we talk about nimbyism being a problem, it's always seen as, as if we're somehow pro developer saying this or pro-industry saying this, whereas there doesn't seem to be the line of thought that actually, you know, settled people on their, with their front and back gardens objecting to uh, to more homes coming into their area. They're actually really strongly contributing to the affordability, the, the supply issues anyway, but also to the affordability crisis, which they are first in line to complain about. So yes. How do you tackle that? Because you're in the really interesting sphere that actually you're involved in both organisations. Um, how do you make residents understand that they're contributing to the problem? It is a really, really hard message to get out there because often what I find is that when people oppose housing in their area, they aren't 
it's a kind of stereotype, right? You, you see people accusing them that they're deliberately trying to inflate the value of their own homes. That is a very cynical attempt. I genuinely don't think it is that. I think people are, you know, they're, they're trying to protect or preserve the local area. And what they don't think, they don't think about the fact that it has these knock-on impacts. They kind of see new homes as coming in as as almost they would have no effect on um on affordability or on meeting housing need. And perhaps it's easy to make that argument to yourself when you're talking about uh, 30 homes or something being built down the road, because in reality, yes, 30 homes is not enough. You need to be building 30,000 homes across the city region. Um, so it's quite easy for them to make the argument that no one's really harmed by that, but I benefit because I don't, I don't have more cars on my road or I don't have more competition for school places or, or something like that. Um, so I think the first thing is to actually kind of meet those arguments in an honest way and make people aware that there really are costs to this. Um, and so that's one of the things that we push. I mean, re recently we had a case um, in London where a it was actually a council was trying to develop a new block of flats for homeless families. Um, and it involved the demolishing and rebuilding of an old building that they had that was essentially falling to pieces. Um, and there was a huge backlash against it, as you can imagine. And some of the locals actually, um, what they what they tried to do was to get the building uh, recognised as a building of, of architectural, special architectural interest, um, which was, uh, it was quite laughable actually, because it was a kind of concrete, plain white building that, that really no one would argue was attractive. And I think the, the proposed plan was, was much more um, pleasant. And it just really surprised me when I read what people were saying about that development was that they almost didn't consider the social value of building homes for homeless people in one of the most expensive cities in the world. It was like they thought that they could preserve this old crumbling and much, much smaller building um, without any cost to anyone. And so it's for us, it's very much about pushing that line, but it's also about recognizing the kind of arguments people are making and what they're not thinking when they are doing that. So London Yimby um, focuses very specifically on a proposal called Street Folks, which tries to unlock um, the support of local communities by allowing them to essentially benefit from um, uh, agreeing to allow more development in their area. So the, the idea is that you as a street would get a vote on uh, allowing buildings on your street or on your block to be one or two stories taller, because then that means not only are you allowing all of your neighbours to build slightly higher, but you're also allowing yourself to build slightly higher. And then therefore you can add uh, a story, you could add several bedrooms to your house, you can you know, if you've got a growing family or something like that. So the idea is tackling that political challenge as well as the economic one. You know, you you mentioned there uh, that it's important that we treat this conversation honestly. And, you know, a, a lot of my day job is spent in stakeholder engagement and, and public consultation. And um, so when I use the, when I refer to NIMBYism, you know, unfortunately it does categorise a lot. But here's the challenge for me. When you speak to people at an individual level, nobody believes that's what they're doing. And they're very insulted by this. And and by the way, I, I do believe that they don't consciously want to block development. They are consciously aware of the need for homes. And, 
usually they're putting forward arguments that really do sound logical. So, for example, they will say, you know, the traffic flow isn't here. The school places don't exist here. We already have uh, resource issues, um, you know, so the arguments put forward sound very logical and reasonable. And in fact, they are, you know, in some cases, I look at the local authorities and, um, you know, I've lived for a time in Spain and I think that some other countries do this better at putting the infrastructure in place before you put the housing in place. You know, I, I, certainly in Ireland, we do it the other way around. So, you know, we either end up with these really challenging pain points for residents, new and, and old, or we end up with these ghost estates in the middle of nowhere where people don't want them. Um, and, you know, it, it, this seems to be something that we haven't really gotten right, despite all of the lessons that are so clearly visible. But how do you how do you approach conversations with communities when the reason for not wanting development seems really reasonable? Because the, the facilities are strained and yet we know that these are still areas that are underdeveloped. How do yeah. you balance that? It's, it is extremely challenging because, as you've pointed out, all of the reasons that they will put forward and, and they, they truly believe these reasons, they sound very they sound very logical. They sound very fair. The issue is that they don't seem aware that these arguments are made for every single development. And obviously, in any development, there's going to be a scale, you know, the extent to which the local school is over or undersubscribed. All of these things are on, on a kind of sliding scale. And what I have observed is that the, the backlash against new homes does not seem to be actually related to the real um, position, right? You would get people saying, no, we're we're too crowded here already, regardless of how crowded or uncrowded the area is. In fact, I get the impression, and unfortunately, because we our, our data on, on planning is so poor um, and, and inconsistently held across England, no one can really do these analyses. But I have a very strong suspicion that the major determining factor of, of what drives a powerful campaign against new developments is actually just how wealthy and how much free time the local people have. So wealthier areas tend to be far better at objecting to new housing. And obviously, those tend to be the areas where it's most in demand, and most needed. Um, so, I mean, for us, I think the most interesting thing is actually we're just often the first voice coming in and saying in a calm way, OK, we do need these homes. And it, it's, it's I think it's quite surprising sometimes for, for local councillors who are involved in the decision whether or not to authorise these things. They don't they haven't had that before. Um, they haven't had a group of people coming in in the same way that they get the locals coming in saying we don't want it. They haven't had a group of young people coming in saying, well, actually, we do because these homes are for us. These homes are the homes that we might be buying in five or 10 years time if we're lucky. Um, and it, it comes as a surprise to them. And I also don't think people are people are not stupid. Right. If If they're having. 10 retirees coming into the room and saying, no, actually, we don't need homes in these areas. They know that all of these people are retired homeowners. They have homes already. They're comfortably housed for the most part. If they have two young renters coming in and saying, actually, I do need those homes, they are able to make that balance and realise, you know, there's there's a, an unfairness here in that young people don't have as much time in general because most of them are working full-time jobs. They aren't perhaps as experienced or as confident in coming and representing their interests. So. I think I think councillors and, and, and politicians more generally are able to consider these arguments, but it's just a case of actually hearing it for the first time, actually hearing it, someone come out and say, 
I want homes. We do need to build them. Um, so that is very much what we have focused on as a group, getting young people to represent their own interests. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because you're touching on something that really is very evident across public consultation in Ireland as well, that public consultation, no matter where you do, it feels very familiar. And by familiar, I mean, you could almost predict the profile and demographic of people who contribute. And there are so many reasons for this. But actually, I think technology has the potential to be a real game changer here because, you know, by widening the net through the use of technology, um, and of course, this has been so well enabled over the the last 15 months with COVID, um, what we're finding is that instead of these uh, very loud minority voices being amplified, you know, it gives us an opportunity to really share, uh, well, to, to, to gather and share the voices of maybe the previously silent majority. And the majority of people do want m- more affordable housing. They want more housing and housing that is affordable. You know, um, I, I mentioned there at the top of this interview that I, I came across um, uh, an article that you had written back in February. So much of it really resonated with me, Anya, and um, I will definitely share a link to this article as I'm as I'm circulating this through the iProperty Radio website and podcast. Um, but in this, you looked at the experience in Sydney and, you know, we're talking about maybe the same type of people getting involved in, in public consultation. And you're absolutely right when you talk about um, retirees or people who have more time or certainly people who are living in their own homes that they have been in for a number of decades. That's that's just so common. Um, but one of the things you, you touched on there as well is that... Um, people or certainly wealthier areas have a better ability to come together. They have more resources to fight off developers. And quite frankly, in South Dublin, we're seeing this to a shocking extent. Um, You know, it's really quite discouraging to see how, you know, how much of this is happening. But I thought what was really interesting is you looked at the Sydney example uh, and we'll get into, there were so many points in that, we're going to get into a few of those, but actually looking at wealthier areas, you actually noticed that the, the wealthier areas tended to perhaps have more land supply, have at least equal demand, and yet less of the burden to deliver new housing was being put in those areas. And that's before the public even have an opportunity to contribute. So. Yeah. That's a policymaking issue. Is that a lack of political bravery, a lack of policy bravery? I think it is, yeah. Um, so my article about Sydney, it kind of pointed to a system that is relatively sing- similar to England, or it was relatively similar to England, um, but actually pushed through some of the reforms that Priced Out have been calling for loudly. So it's a fantastic case study for us because what it showed is that they work, and they work surprisingly quickly in terms of reducing the cost of housing. Um, my one problem with this is, is, as you say, is that the targets for new house building, um, so this was the New South Wales uh, regional government uh, imposed these targets essentially on councils across New South Wales, and it did distribute them very unevenly and, in my view, very unfairly. Um, it, it gave uh, relatively poor areas far higher housing targets, even though those areas already have lower housing costs, so there's less demand than the wealthier areas. Um, And from a kind of economic standpoint, if you were doing this properly and you wanted to have the biggest impact on reducing rents and reducing prices, and also, very importantly, 
letting people live where they want to live in in the kind of nicer areas of town, right? There's demand for it. People want to live there. People want to live near those schools. They want to live in the areas that have access to parks. That's why those places are expensive. Um, then you would build more there if you were being fair and if you were uh, being efficient. Um, they did the opposite. And as, as, as you point out, I think this is largely a political issue that those wealthier areas tend to have more resources to fight back, to push back against these things. Um, and I, I mean, I really can't characterize it, as you say, in any way other than political cowardice. It's it's just it's, it's people making decisions. And it was it, I, I'm quite interested to see how they justified it, actually, because I don't think that's something that they really addressed when they published these figures that, you know, the the burden. I, I hesitate to say burden because obviously many of the people in these areas will benefit from these new homes. Um, but to push to push all of that onto the, the areas that are already poor and essentially let the, the richer areas get away with continuing to, to to profit off the lack of housing supply is extraordinarily unfair. And it is a shame that what was otherwise a quite good programme of works and phenomenally successful um, could was not more successful because they didn't do it properly. Okay. Um, and in a way, I jumped into kind of the middle of the article and I pulled out maybe the, the I, I pulled up maybe the main or I won't say the only but certainly the main criticism of this but actually this is broadly a really good initiative um, and good policy making so can you maybe just talk us through uh, talk us through the experience of the New South Wales government and maybe what lessons can be learned from that yeah so Sydney um, and, and New South Wales more broadly had all of the problems that we've already discussed extremely high housing costs extremely high rents and then obviously that has a, a knock-on effect for people's experience of housing in more broad ways. So if housing is expensive, people are forced to share for longer. They're forced to accept poorer conditions. They lose negotiating power with their landlords because they can't afford to move to another place. And the landlord knows that and, and can easily take advantage of it. Um, so really, if, if prices and, and rents are too high, then you lose out on so many ways because of it. Um, and then you also see other things like gentrification, which is a word I think is, is quite poorly defined. Um, so I don't really like it. But in terms of uh, poorer people essentially being forced out of areas, that happens because prices keep rising because uh, wealthier people move to those areas and outbid them for housing. So the solution to that is, of course, to build enough for everyone to, to live where they want to. Um, but essentially, uh, New South Wales looked at this problem and, and decided to take a holistic and and quite clever approach in, in that they was informed on good economic evidence. They set up a commission um, to, to look at the issue at the regional level. And they identified that actually the, the key problem is that they simply weren't building enough homes. Um, so we are in an environment very much internationally where housing is expensive across a lot of cities, although to very varying extents. Um, because of you know, we have rising populations, we have rising incomes, we have low interest rates. All of these factors um, push into housing being more expensive. Um, obviously, some places uh, experience far better affordability, though, because they build more to, to counteract that effect. Um, so they identified this problem and they introduced a series of reforms. Um, the first of which is that they set much higher housing targets um, for their councils. They distributed them to councils. They introduced um, a number of uh, things like um, 
they uh, instead of the existing um, planning panels that had councillors and developers on so there was a huge kind of political thing that people didn't think it was fair for developers to be deciding whether or not they should build homes and indeed as we've discussed councillors are often representing the 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 views of a a very loud minority they removed councillors and developers from those panels and had um, independent experts instead Um, and they did just a number of things basically they uh, required councils to update their local plans. They gave additional funding to support those uh, councils who had to um, substantially increase the housing supply. They made it easier to release new land. So they did a whole range of each probably relatively small changes, right? They didn't fundamentally redesign the whole system or anything like that. They just kind of uh, made changes here and there. And it had an enormous and quite rapid impact. Um, as I said, in the same global macroeconomic conditions where prices in, in England, for instance, were after two decades of rapid inflation had, had kind of stabilised, um, but at a very, very high level. Um, I, I believe in Ireland, you were still seeing massive growth at this time in house prices. Under all of these same economic conditions, um, Sydney actually saw rents uh, fall by about seven and a half percent, maybe a bit less over four years. So that's an enormous amount of saving each month to every renter in the city of Sydney. Um, They saw a a huge fall in the average property price from over a million Australian dollars to um, about 860,000 Australian dollars over the course of one year. Um, And that's not just a supply issue, right? That is because um, if you build enough homes, that says to investors, actually, this asset is not going to keep inflating. So housing becomes less desirable as a as a pension, essentially, right? A lot of people buy um, properties to let out and they use that as a, a source of pension or income in their retirement. If you build enough homes, that becomes a less desirable um, way to store your money. And instead, you will go and invest it in other types of uh, things like stocks or, or bonds or something like that. Um, so there was a kind of a double impact of not only supply, but also housing becoming less desirable as an investment asset, which obviously then means that more people can buy their own home because they're not competing with landlords for the same properties. Um, and it, I think the thing that struck me most when I was researching this is that Sydney, Sydney and, and New South Wales had all of the same arguments that we saw in the UK. Um, a lot, you know, and I'm sure in Ireland as well, people saying that no, building more homes won't make them cheaper. No, it's more complex than that. Um, they didn't listen to those people. They built more homes and prices fell really rapidly. And it was just astonishing to see that uh, there were no kind of mayor culpers coming out of the uh, the people who had been wrong in the first place. They didn't come and say, oh, actually, you know, we were wrong um, when we said that it was a bit more complex than simply building enough homes for your population. <laughs> um, so it's quite interesting then to see that other countries around the world don't pick up on this lesson, that, that we see it happening internationally. We know the evidence is very strong. If you build more homes, your homes will be cheaper. Um, and it astonishes me that that we in England don't look abroad more often. Um, and, and perhaps you, you experience the same thing. 93.9, Dublin South FM. You know, I, I think you articulated it really well at the top of the, the interview when you said the economic question really has already been answered. That 
we need more supply. And uh, Ronan Lyons in Ireland, who's a commentator here in Ireland, a uh, very well respected researcher, um, you know, he has been saying that for so many years and just he just cannot understand why it isn't getting through. And um, but there was another there was another insight uh, from your case study. And you know it completely contradicted one of the main things that that is said um for uh, and that's in relation to planning permissions. You know the, there is there is an argument um and you've referred to it uh, as a common claim in Britain, I would say very common in Ireland as well that you know if more planning permission is granted it only drives up the value of land and then developers sit um, and hold this land. And developers in Ireland, they, they've genuinely countered this um, quite a lot, but maybe not to great effect. Um, but you, you really tackle this in the article. So you might just talk us through that. Yeah, so it's it's a very, very common argument that, that we hear over here that more planning permissions will not result in more buildings because um, often they make the argument that developers will simply sit on that land and they'll kind of drip feed housing uh, at, at a rate that, that keeps the prices high. Um, what we found or what I found in, in Sydney was that that was clearly not the case, actually. Um, there's, there's a very clear relationship. And if you account for a kind of two or three year lag for development to actually happen from the point of permission, um, there's a, a really clear and obvious relationship between more permissions being approved and more buildings being built. And I, I, I find the argument quite strange, really, because obviously, if you are only issuing so many permissions, that is the absolute cap of the number of homes that can be built. You can't just build more homes than there are permissions. Um, so you you have to build, you have to permission more than you would want to see built. And we are nowhere near that in England. Um, but they, I guess the critics kind of have a point in, in when they say that not every single additional permission does feed into one additional uh, home. So, uh, for instance, I observed that the, the, the peak, I've got my article in front of me, but the peak of um, units is about 13,500 lower than the peak of permissions. Um, so that means that not every single uh, permission that is issued results in a home. But that doesn't demonstrate that planning is not the barrier, right? It doesn't matter that there's a one-to-one um, increase in homes built per permission issues. All that matters is that as long as you are increasing increasing permissions, you are increasing your housing supply. And what we've seen in Sydney and also what we have seen in England over the, over the last 10 years is that if you increase permissions, you increase housing. And so the challenge for local authorities is that they need to understand that not every one that they issue will result in a new home. And there are various reasons for that. It's not just developers cynically holding back housing supply. It could be that um, their funding agreements has fallen through. It could be that the developer has gone bust for whatever reason. There's, there's a lot of things that can happen. It could be that they're actually just reapplying for a different planning permission, as often happens here. Um, so essentially, all that matters is that you're releasing enough permissions that you can have a bit of slack in the system. And as long as that housing supply is increasing, then it's working. Essentially, as I said, it doesn't need to be a one to one ratio. Um, and I, I think that's a kind of almost a new argument to some people. They they think that, you know, we permission this, you build it, that should be it. And if if that doesn't happen in every case, that means the whole system is falling through. It doesn't mean that there are loads of other issues going on. Um, 
And I don't, I don't know about Ireland whether you have increased your permissions and whether that has resulted oh. in more homes, but it definitely has here. You, we, you know, that's the really interesting thing. Yes, we have increased our permissions. Uh, yes, that was increasing homes prior to COVID and, and we expect to get back to that. But um, exactly as you articulated there, because it's not a one-to-one ratio, it's seen as a failure. Whereas um, the key takeaway I took from the case study and what the data showed was, as you very simply put it, if you allow more building, there will be more building. Um, and it really comes down to a simple terms of that. But, you know, it strikes me that this two to three year time lag um, also is getting very close to the election cycles. Um, and so therefore, it's an easy area for criticism. Um, you know, so in a way, all of these issues are just so interrelated. Um, in Ireland, there is a new commission on housing being established um, at, uh, at the end of the summer. The chairperson has already been appointed and it's a chairperson who would be massively respected. So um, somebody who would be seen as non-political and certainly having um, the ability to, to garner support and, you know, take a, take an honest look and make the hard judgments that, that, that need to be taken. So there's reasons to be optimistic. But and I just want to circle back to some of the other priorities that priced out because they are, they are actually relevant for here as well. You know, you talked about um, tackling uh, social and affordable housing through supply, but also tax reform um, and maybe incentivizing for people to right size. You know, yes. again, that's an issue we have in Ireland and... But part of this is because we haven't allowed new development so that, you know, people who might actually want to downsize or right size can't do it within their communities. They can't do it and still have the same doctor and butchers and and facilities. Um, So, again, all these issues are interrelated. But can you talk us maybe through some of the tax reforms that Priced Out are pushing for? Yeah, so... um... Our, our main focus has, has always been on the kind of land value taxation idea. Um, so, so the idea is that tax should be charged at a kind of proportion of the value of land. Um, firstly, that, that's a good idea because it encourages people to build densely and efficiently and to use land in the way that that actually generates the, the best returns for people and in the way that they prefer. Um, however, that that is an idea that people have been endorsing for probably 200 years or more. And I, um, as far as I'm aware, it's uh, it's not got very far. Um, so in, in the kind of shorter term, what we have endorsed is uh, what's called the Fairer Share campaign. And that's a, a group of organisations um, in, in the UK that um, basically endorse uh, getting rid of council tax and stamp duty and rolling that into a new proportional property tax. Um, so just to... to cover those i don't know whether your taxation system is the same but stamp duty is just a fee is is a, is a tax essentially that's charged upon the sale of a property um so it depends whether you're a first-time buyer it depends on the value of the property and so on but say you're buying a, a property and, and you're going to pay 10 15 pounds stamp duty um in addition um and that is a terrible terrible tax and i i really find it hard to imagine why it would ever have been designed in the first place because what it does is it makes people not want to move house because there's a block charge that they face um and it creates enormous barriers to people who might want to right size as you say and it's in their interest to do so um if you're getting older your children have all moved out 
and you're kind of rattling around a, a four or five bedroom house, you might have a staircase that's no longer easy for you to get up or down. And you might want to move to a nice, either down the road, as you say, maybe there's a, a nice development of retirement living flats or something like that, that would be more suitable to you, that would have amenities on site or easily accessible, that would allow you to live in, in the local area that you want. All of this is really beneficial to people. And we know that in, in other countries like the USA, for instance, there is a much larger culture of people moving to retirement communities and, and living a far higher quality of life than people in England do. Um, I mean, we have such a problem with falls in older people. And no doubt that part of that is because they are in these homes that are far too big, trying to maintain them, dangerous staircases and so on. No, not necessarily even having level access because they're older Victorian buildings and stuff like that. Um, so we, we think that stamp duty is a terrible tax and, and that it would be far better to charge that as a proportion of property value. Um, and, and again, getting rid of council tax. So the, our council tax rates were set in the 90s and they have not been reevaluated since then, even though there's been an enormous change in property prices across the country. Um, so some areas like London and the southeast have seen unbelievable growth in house prices. Some areas in, in the north of the country have not seen very much change at all. And yet the people in those areas are often paying just as much council tax, um, despite the value of their property being, you know, a tenth of, of the value of the properties in London. Um, and again, that's that's a, it's a highly regressive tax. Poorer people are paying far more. So, so that's why we think if you were to take these two taxes, stamp duty and council tax, um, roll them up into a new proportional property tax. So it could be set at a rate that's not too penalizing. You could introduce it on a grandfathered basis. So it comes in at this rate and then slowly increases for, for people whose properties are more expensive. Then you could kind of slowly just encourage people to start moving into the properties that are more appropriate to them, where they would have a higher quality of life. That would not only benefit the people who are downsizing, the older people, for instance, who are in the larger homes, but it would also then benefit the, the families who are living you know, in a one or two bed flat right now, but they want to have children or they're already living with children in these overcrowded conditions to move into the larger homes. Um, one argument that we often hear is that there isn't a housing shortage in England, which I, I totally disagree with that. But the, the argument is made on the basis that there are enough bedrooms in this country for every single person or couple to have a bedroom. Um, and that may be true, but of course, many people for perfectly valid reasons, and as we've seen over the last year, they might want an office. They might want a spare bedroom for their relatives to come and say, I don't think we should be penalizing people for wanting to have a little bit of extra space. We just need to build enough homes so that everyone can have that space rather than having this kind of, you know, we should try and have the exact amount of homes that is perfect for the number of people in this country. We need a bit of slack, essentially. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense. You know, again, I touched on your work with uh, Price Out and with uh, London Yimby. Um, so there's something I want to ask you, and I'm not even sure the best way to frame this, but in my experience, we've, we've really polarised all of the different players or parties to, to properties, whether it's the developer or the local authority or the first-time buyers or the investors, or now it's, uh, you know, individual investors versus institutional investors. You know, in Ireland, um, we have an unfortunate uh, an unfortunate habit of um, putting monikers on things like institutional funds. So we use a lot of derogatory language and 
you know, that might that might seem almost skittish to a point, but actually it is a real problem because it confuses the public. It confuses people who aren't working within the property industry and understands um, how developments get funded. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I can't understand when this break happened, but it is very clear to me looking around Dublin and in other cities that developers and home builders were always part of the community. It was a community service they were providing and they worked very closely with the community or where you had um, local employers providing homes. You know, the, the there was never this uh, polarisation and yet we have that now. So, and this is the problem with any, with um, policymakers introducing supply side initiatives. Um, it is seen as unpalatable to support developers in any way because that's somehow contrary to the community and historically I don't know when that split happened because it wasn't there a century uh, it wasn't there a century ago um in fact the very opposite so when you're through the two organizations that you're working with how do you how do you bring everyone together knowing that each player has a vital role to play yeah, I think that's a fantastic point, really, about the kind of almost the way that developers are, are demonized nowadays. And, and and if, if for instance, you advocate building more homes, you're sometimes, and I am sometimes accused of being a shill for developers or something like that, um, which is totally untrue. Um, I, d- I don't really know how you kind of get around that issue. And, and I think, as you say, it's a relatively new thing. Um, People almost they kind of perceive the developers as a this this kind of faceless monolith, right? This this evil, um, really wealthy company, um, and they don't seem to see it as well. Actually, it's the kind of builders working down the site near you. I wonder, and this is total, total kind of um, just thinking outside the box. If, if perhaps it's to do with the fact that a lot of builders these days, in in England at least, are very very large. A lot of small builders were wiped out during the financial crisis. So the, the more kind of local organizations that, that would have built a lot of homes um, in the past, um, they were essentially wiped out during the financial crisis and they have found it virtually impossible to reestablish themselves since because I suspect largely because the planning system is so risky and so hard to navigate as a small organization that cannot spread its risk over a number of sites. They're kind of they're essentially beaten out of the system. Um, the the larger builders kind of operate almost as an oligopoly, right? There's only a few of them in England. They they own and have options on on uh, quite a lot of the available land, and it's it's really obvious that a small builder can't compete with them. So I wonder if perhaps that's part of the challenge. Um, but it seems to me that they're the very people who might be able to work with local authorities and approved housing bodies. To, to get the delivery of social and affordable homes. Um, because again, you know, there just seems to be this disconnect and it's, it's so unhelpful. Um, I, I think it's so unhelpful when we pit one solution provider against another, understanding that actually we need luxury homes, we need starter homes, we need um, social and affordable, we need houses, we need apartments, we need one one bed units and we need four bed units you know that that one isn't uh that the the support of one doesn't diminish the support for another um yeah. so you know in ireland uh we've actually banned 
co-living uh, um, co-living units now right. um yeah the, I, again they were just coming into ireland and i there was a lot of public backlash against it and without any real understanding they were um they were banned now i think it's something that is going to have to be revisited because mm-hmm. unfortunately bedsits were also banned so when you take away the bottom rung of the ladder you know the market abhors a void if you take away the bottom rung of the ladder the market will step in to create mm-hmm. one if you don't like what they're creating then you need to create something else you know and that's that's essentially what's happened but what we're finding at the moment is, you know, the solution, some of the solutions, you know, like you saying, the economic question has been answered. We need more supply. Yeah. And if at the moment, you know, construction costs in Ireland are such that we're finding um, outside of Dublin, particularly. Um, in fact, only in the last week, I interviewed an estate agent from Limerick, which is one of Ireland's uh, regional cities. Um, and, she was saying that as an estate agent, she is still still selling um, apartments below the cost that they can that they can be built for. So wow. So this this is a genuine problem. Um, you know, so with construction costs, uh, with construct with construction costs, uh, one of the things we've seen is that the community there isn't a trust. So I think the development community needs to trust. The public, the community, with with accurate information about what goes into placemaking, what goes into providing a, a, a space, um, and by participating, allowing the community part- to participate with them, you're actually getting input from the community that can be helpful. But more importantly, you're educating the community so that when when requests are made, demands are put forward, that they're realistic, that they're done in the context of the development, what will be right for the community. Because this this um, pitting one solution provider against each other isn't working and it's causing this almost stalemate in the market. Whereas through Priced Out, you seem to have a very good approach to bringing all of the solution providers together. And part of that means informing stakeholders, letting them understand the trade-offs that need to be made. Um, and maybe it does come back to challenging some of the, the reasons why, you know, when, when people are objecting to new development in their area, maybe calling out some of those reasons, because I think you said it very well there that, yes, the reasons that people are putting forward seem very reasonable, but they need to understand that that's exactly the same reasoning put forward by every other community objecting to new development. And if everybody does that, then there is no development or what we see is a process where the decision-making is taking out of their hands. And I don't think people want that. Planning is a public function. Absolutely. Well, it's one of one of the things that we try to argue, actually, because you get a lot of people um, in in England who oppose reforming the planning system because they think, you know, they don't want more homes being built near them or they think it will result in the wholesale destruction of um, the environment or something like that. And what I try to say to them is that our system is so broken right now that there are win-win situations for everyone. We, If we had a planning system that was more, um, you know, if it, if it was fairer, if it was clearer, if it was not discretionary, so instead of having this battle over every single development, um, instead of instead of having that, we actually had a rules based system where you know the local authority looks at building their local plans, says 
this is what we are going to do. We're going to build homes here. We're going to ensure that these homes have the transport links or that transport link is already in place or, or so on. We are going to do this and we, we will consult with the local communities. We will ensure that our housing is distributed fairly around our area, around our region. That is established. Once that is established, if the developer comes through and says, I want to build these homes here, we look at the plan and we say, yes, this meets the plan, like this is permitted. You don't have an individual battle on each and every site. And I think that is fairer, obviously, for the people who need housing, who, who will have far less expenses to pay because of the delays and the costs that the planning system imposed. But it also means you have more certainty over knowing we are preserving these local areas, these, these natural sites, for instance, these fields over here, they're not in the local plan. They're not going to be developed. You you can walk your dogs there. Um, we're going to use these sites over here efficiently. So, you know, we know that there's a lot of demand over here. So we're going to build some nice flats of varying sizes. Over here, we know that there is perhaps not as intense demand, but we know that there is some, you know, intensively used agricultural land that is actually not very environmentally um not very good environmentally. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to build some suburban type homes with with gardens and so on. You can actually get this win-win situations where you're using your environmental, you're using the environment more efficiently, more effectively. You can increase biodiversity by having gardens or whatever instead of intensive agricultural land or or even golf courses. Um, one fact that I still find hard to believe is that there are more um, golf courses, there's more land in golf courses in the green belt, which is a, a kind of uh, a belt around London that you can't develop in. Um, virtually, or you virtually never can develop in. There are more, more land in golf courses within that green belt than the entire of Kensington and Chelsea, which is a large council area in London and is some of the most expensive land in the world. Um, we could solve London's housing crisis just by building on those golf courses. <laughs> And we could also protect the environment, too, because golf courses, as you know, they'll use up enormous amounts of water, pesticides, uh, extremely unbiodiverse because of that. Um, you know, not not good for animals, not good for, for nature. You could have suburbs with gardens. You could have parks. You could have accessible land that people can go and enjoy the nature. Um, and you could solve the housing crisis. It's It's a win-win situation, in my view. Yeah, you know, you're touching on a frustration that I, that I hear a lot and I have heard a lot on the show over the last kind of two and a half years. And that is, um, it seems that a lot of the issues we're dealing with, they feel like really solvable problems. They don't feel like they should be un, uncrackable at all. Um, and yet you have to come back and question then, why is this not happening? Is it political will? Is it political bravery? Is it communities not coming together? Uh, is it misinformation? Is it disorganisation? Um, you know, I, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I like to believe that there isn't a concerted effort to hold this back, but maybe just a lack of maybe joined up thinking. And, you know, I, I mentioned in Ireland, we, we are getting a new commission on housing. And I'm, I'm genuinely hopeful that, that that's going to, um, that we'll, we'll see some tangible change from that. Um, Anya, I, I could talk to you all day. Before we finish up, can I ask, um, do you think technology has a role to play in bringing all of the different stakeholders together um, or, or even, even making the data that we need in terms of planning more accessible? What are you seeing from your side? 
Absolutely. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that information on planning in this country is is utterly atrocious. Um, every single local authority has a different planning portal. Every single one presents it in their own way. It's not machine readable. Um, so as, as someone like me, who's quite interested to know, you know, what are the determining factors in, in what, um, you know, which sites get approved, which sites don't get approved? How can I, how can I figure out what's causing that difference? You just can't do it um, unless you have a lot of time to go and sample these and go through individual local authorities. So firstly, I think there's a role for vastly improving data on housing. Um, a while ago, I spoke to a, uh, a guy from Germany who was advising one of the political parties there. And he was asking me questions about England's rental market, um, presumably because he wanted an example for what not to do. Um, and uh, he, he was telling me, well, how do you know what rents are? You know, do you do you have what we have in Germany where we have um, essentially tables where you could see the price per square meter of properties of different ages, of different types and all of that? They have charts for the averages for all of these things. And I was like, oh, we don't even know what rents are. Um, we don't have good data. Like it's, it's very unreliable. It's either out of date substantially or, or it's not. It's not an accurate picture of, of the kind of properties that are going on the market. So I think there's also a scope for just understanding what is happening um, with housing far better if, if we use um, technology. And then on one final thing is actually the process of democratic engagement in planning, I think, could be vastly improved. Uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, it's you know, um, it's easier for younger people to get involved if you are engaging people in with, with technology. Um, and it's also easier to ensure that people are being represented properly in, in a more representative way by using um, technology instead of the, the traditional approach that we have to local planning engagement, which is sticking posters on lampposts in the local area, which obviously will tend to bias things towards the people who are already living nearby and who are, you know, roaming about the, the village with, with nothing to do, um, but respond to planning applications. So I think there's, there's scope in so many ways for us to improve our use of technology, to engage people in the planning process, to understand the impacts of our decisions on affordability through better data on rents or, or even living conditions more broadly. Um, and, and also to to understand the planning system, how it's working, how it's not working, and actually allow us to compare between different areas in a far more appropriate way. That sounds that sounds almost idealistic at this stage, Anya. But um, I, I certainly hope you're right, uh, and, and I certainly hope we can pick up this conversation again at a later time. That was Anya Martin, who's the director of the Affordable Housing Campaign Group, priced out and advisor to London Yimby. Uh, thank you again for joining us. That's it from us this week. You can get in touch with the show by listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM or contacting us on social media at iProperty Radio. The email is hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Peter rice on sound we're back at the same time next week from myself carol talman and all the team here stay safe